The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in free. Two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, Zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hey, everybody. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest today is UCI math lecturer, Neil Donaldson. Now, before you become intimidated by the big M word, math, I want to assure you that this will be a show that explores what math is from the top down. Like, what is it about all these numbers that seem to be taking over the world? Computers, economics, quantum. It begs the question, do you have to be a physicist to understand it all? And Neil is here to help us with that. Oh, and one other thing, Neil is a new daddy by about six days. So I think we've caught him at a potentially unguarded moment in his life. And who knows what he will answer, but that's great. We'll be getting the real deal here. So welcome, Neil. How are you today? And how is the baby? I'm doing nicely. It's the, the nipper is doing very well. He was born on Friday. Thankfully, I'm not a brand new daddy because I already have a four-year-old daughter. But uh, thankfully, he's very well behaved and mom is doing very well as well. Oh, good. Great to hear. Well, you know, before we get into the meat and potatoes, can you just tell us where you grew up and what you like to do when you were a kid? <laughs> I grew up in St. Andrews, Scotland, which um, the, the easiest way to tell people about St. Andrews is if you know anything about golf, it's supposedly where it was invented. And it has a very old university, which rather famously Prince William his current heir to the throne, I guess, second in line after his dad, Charles. He was a student at St. Andrews. And St. Andrews is a very old university. It's about third oldest in the UK, I, I believe. And this town, St. Andrews, is it's a very, let's say, sheltered place to grow up. So both my parents were academics, but in, in the geosciences. So uh, both of them were terrible at mathematics. <laughs> but there we go. Um, but... <clears throat> uh, it, essentially, this town it only has about 15,000 people. And then when the students turn up, um, that adds about 6,000 students. So, you know, roughly one in four, sometimes one in three of the people in the town at any given time are students. And uh -huh. it, it really, it means that also a great many of the, the children who grow up in the town are actually children of people related to the university. The university is just a huge employer for the town. And so it, it's a very... A very academic town, a very sort of sheltered place to grow up. Um, you know, my experience of school, and um, I think growing up and going to the, the grade schools that I went to, um, my high school, 
it was probably akin to going to you know something of a private specialist school where you'd expect you know quite high academics from from everybody but this was just a you know a public school but just because you've got so many kids there who are kids of academics um it was a very different experience say from what it might have been going to school in a big city but in terms of my upbringing well it's a nice small town nice place to grow up i loved getting out and then walking about we lived right next to the edge of town and it's it was pretty pretty sheltered i, I discovered i I really kind of liked building things and just solving problems. I had two younger siblings. And um, I guess what often happens when you've got younger siblings is that the, you know, the, the, the first kid kind of has to fend for themselves a little bit. So I would often just you know, occupy myself for hours, either just building Legos, that kind of thing, or just solving problems. And I found math was a great place to, you know, to escape to as I went through grade school. So um, mm. Just that, that kind of intensity that you could get thinking about a problem hard for a long period of time that felt good from a fairly early age. When did you start to gravitate to math? Um, well, it was like a lot of people, I think we, we gravitate to things that we end up doing well in early on. So you, you know, you feel like, oh, I'm doing well in my tables tests or whatever it was, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you, know, you, you want to just stick with that. But um, Again, I think the ability to think hard and deep about a problem, but also to get a perfect answer. So you could mm-hmm. struggle hard with a problem, but there is kind of an, obviously there is style in mathematics and how you present something matters. There's not just one way to solve something. There's you know lots of ways to present your answer. But once you've thought about it, you know there is a right answer. So I think also that ability to have a, you know, it, it's not subjective in the end, mathematics. There, there is a right answer. Something is true or false, dependent on your, your hypotheses. And so you think hard, but then there's, there's a resolution at the end of it. Mm-hmm. And, and that felt you, maybe just general um, teenage angst. It was, it was kind of an easy place to retreat to, to actually have something that was clean and had, had correct answers to it. So I, I think some of my, my interest in math sort of stems from that. Being a teenager is complicated. <laughs> this, this is clean, you know? <laughs> right. How did you decide where you'd go to university? Um, well, so Edinburgh, where I went for my undergraduate degree, is um, about 40 miles southwest of um, St. Andrews. And it was, it was the big city. I know to people in Southern California, um, you know, what, three or 400,000 people, which is what Edinburgh is, the capital of Scotland, doesn't sound like a big city. But to me, it was enormous and the, and the you know the 40 mile drive to get there it felt like it took forever um, and uh, so in, in part I think there was an element of not wanting to go too far from home and um, I definitely didn't want to stay at home so I did not want to attend St Andrews University and um, because the higher education systems are very slightly different in Scotland and England because the you know the, the, the grade school systems are very slightly different I, I also wanted to stay in Scotland and so when I narrowed it down, it's just in terms of good places to study mathematics in Scotland, you know, the top universities for that would be Glasgow, Edinburgh and St. Andrews. And so I didn't want St. Andrews and Ed- Edinburgh felt closer. So uh, that, that was basically what I applied to. So I guess you did well. And then you went to graduate school after that. So it, it was something of a shock to me to go to Edinburgh because there was a fellow student in my high school, as I said, because I'd grown up in this town where a lot of academics kids 
there was a fellow student in my high school who was just the most extraordinarily gifted mathematician that, that I, I felt like, you know, up until I went to grad school, I'd, I'd come across. Yeah. And, and you, you and, or maybe your, your listeners might have heard of something called the International Math Olympiad, which is a kind of international competition for, you know, finishing grade school kids where they solve these really hard problems that are very much kind of university level problems. And yeah. this kid just absolutely cleaned my clock as, yeah. a, as, a, as a grade school student. And so when I went to Edinburgh, I kind of assumed that I would be surrounded by people like that yeah. and that I would be, you know, the little fish in, the, in a big pond. Yeah. And instead I discovered that actually the very few students who were like that in grade school, they all go to Cambridge, which is where, <laughs> which is where this guy went. So I, I felt like Edinburgh was just perfect in that it's, you know, it's a good school. It's, you know, certainly well ranked, but it's, it, it's not got the absolute creme de la creme. And so I, I kind of rapidly discovered that I was pretty near the top of the, the pack in mathematics in, in Edinburgh. So indeed I did well, but it was, it was something of a surprise. And I, I suspect that having this, this guy as a grade school competition, if you like, even though I say he cleaned my clock, um, kind of made me knuckle down and work a bit harder mm. once I got to my undergrad. <laughs> so I, was like, I thought I was going to have to. But yes, yeah, so I, I, I obviously did, did well at my undergrad and uh, was, was inspired by several really excellent professors and convinced that differential geometry was fun. Um, after doing a couple of summer research projects with uh, with, with various faculty, and um, was was persuaded that I should apply for a PhD. Professor, you just mentioned differential geometry. Right. Can you just briefly tell us what you know? We hear geometry. Sure. Is it the same thing as differential geometry, or so, is it um, differential geometry? Um, is almost everybody listening to this will have um, heard of calculus, um, whether you get the shakes whenever you hear of calculus or not but uh, differential geometry is really bringing calculus into geometry and as a field its massive application is the work of Einstein so it's um, essentially it's the language of general relativity although a lot of people who work in differential geometry as research don't necessarily touch um, relativity or or Einstein's work but it's um, it's a what it's about is trying to understand concepts such as what does it mean for something to be curved? So questions such as how do we know that the earth is round without going into space and taking a photo of it? Because, you know, you can go up into space and and see that the earth is round, Mm -hmm. but how do we know that the earth is round without leaving the earth? Yeah. And, and, and so how, you know, there's various, there's various ways of answering this question. The most obvious one would be, well, if you keep walking in a straight line for long enough, you'll kind of come back to where you started, right? (laughs) Fairly straightforward, but the slightly more complicated answers to this question are, if you took an extremely long loop of string and stretched it over the surface of the earth to make a very, very big triangle, um, everybody knows from from high school geometry that the angles in the triangle add up to 180 degrees. Well, that's not true on the surface of the earth they will add up to more than 180 degrees. And the fact that the angles in the triangle add up to something other than 180 degrees is one way of detecting um, curvature. Wow, that's amazing. So are you saying like when the triangle is like laying on the surface of the Earth? Right. Is it... oh, okay. So easy thought experiment, start at the North Pole, walk down to the equator, turn right, <laughs> so you're, you're, you're turning westwards, walk a quarter of the way around the Earth. 
walk a quarter of the way around the equator, turn right again. Mm-hmm. You've now picked up two angles of 90 degrees, right? You've picked up two, two right angles and walk straight back up to the North Pole. You've got yourself a triangle there, which has three angles in it. All of them are right angles. Wow. So that triangle has 270 degrees in it. Wow. So on the surface of the Earth, every triangle is going to have angles adding up to more than a 180 degrees. Wow. That's... So I, I found this, you know, these kind of ideas just fascinating as, as an undergrad and wanted to play with them more. So yeah. um, I decided yeah. differential geometry was, was for me. Yeah. <clears throat> so where did you go to grad school? At Bath in the, okay. in the southwest of England, so um, west of London. Um, I guess probably a lot of people have heard of Bath. If you ever watch a period drama on uh, on TV, um, it's it, almost all. Some of it is filmed in Bath because it's got those nice big old Georgian uh, um, buildings. Okay. And so, when did you graduate with your yeah, PhD? So I, I graduated. I, so, unlike America, PhDs are pretty quick in in the oh. UK. Um, typically, mathematics people are the only people who finish in three years. So I, I submitted my thesis in, um, within three years, and that was the fall of 2005 that I, I, uh, I finished that. But then they read it, and it took about three months for my examiners to read the thesis. And uh, I was examined um, around about the beginning of 2006. So it was early 2006 I, I graduated. And then gotcha. um, I basically got a, you know, I was looking for postdocs. Um, Really not sure what I was going to do with myself because I was quite exhausted after, you know, really going at it for the PhD. And around about June of 2006, I got what's essentially an invitation to apply for a postdoc at, uh, at UC Irvine. So that's what I did. And eight weeks later, I found myself on a plane coming out to Irvine. Excuse me just for a moment, Professor, while I yeah. update our audience. If you're just joining us, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI math professor, lecturer, Neil Donaldson. He began teaching at UCI in 2006 and continues today teaching an assortment of math-related classes, and we're just learning about where he went to college, and, and he's just arriving at UCI just after graduating with his PhD. So... You heard about a job opening, so you applied and, and you got right sort in? Sort of. I mean, it, it's it's a dirty secret that in academia, a lot of it is an old boys network, whereas in this case, it would be an old girls network. Uh-huh. Because uh, the person who was my research mentor at, at, at Irvine, Julianne Turn, who's now retired, and um, she knew my PhD advisor back in Bath, and she needed someone to fill a postdoc at fairly short notice. And so just put out the feelers to a whole bunch of her professional contacts. So I got an email saying, would you be interested? I wasn't the only person who applied right. for this, but this is often what happens. There are lots of job openings, but there's also a lot of things that just have to get filled very quickly. Um, and if you happen to be in the right place at the right time, off you go. Um, and, and that sort of is what happened to me. And I was originally supposed to be out in Irvine for a year, but then that got extended to three years. And so one of the standard ways that people come to Irvine is as a visiting assistant professor. And the the visiting prefix here means essentially that you get fired after three years. So, uh, you know, you're encouraged as a as a newly minted PhD to kind of travel around a bit and and work in a few places before you apply for a, a tenure track permanent research position just to kind of build up contacts. So that that's what this position was. I was initially here for three years um, and then expected to toddle off back to the UK. 
<laughs> so you haven't done that. How has that evolved? Well, if your listeners could see the, the ring on my finger kind of is, uh, is, is what kept me here. <laughs> and, and, and now I have uh, two children and a wife who will refuse to let me leave the country. So uh, so basically, that, that's why I'm still here. Um, but there's also definitely during my postdoc, I evolved on what I enjoyed doing. I didn't know that I really liked teaching as um, until I was actually in charge of my own classes. I'd been a teaching assistant as a, as a graduate student, but that's not the same as being, you know, actually the person who's in charge of the classes and uh, getting, getting to see how that feels. So by the end of my postdoc, I, I really knew that I enjoyed teaching a lot more than, than research. Um, so I mean, one of my, my jokes is that I consider myself a stupid polymath, um, by, by which I mean, I'm, I'm interested in a lot of things, but at a relatively shallow level. So I like teaching a, a wide variety of classes, but if you like, I, I don't necessarily want to get much beyond the, the depth necessary to, to, to teach and understand, say, undergraduate level stuff, maybe a bit into graduate level stuff. But to be a professional researcher, you, you really have to be very, very narrow and deep. And after three years of um, really trying to get deep within differential geometry, I, it wasn't making me very happy. It, it felt like the problems I was thinking of were not, it, they, didn't really, they didn't really do it for me, I should put it that way. I, I, I wanted things to be a bit broader and I, I really enjoy communicating with students and helping, helping them understand things that I thought were beautiful. Whereas the, the problems that I was trying to solve myself, they were, they were so specialized and almost nobody could really understand what I was doing. It, it, it just didn't feel, it, it wasn't enough. For me, if you like. So, uh, mm -hmm. so I knew by the end of my postdoc that I, I really wanted to focus on teaching. And unfortunately, as, as many listeners will know, um, 2009 is, is when basically everything went south in terms of the economy. And so it became very difficult to find good teaching work for a very long time. So um, I, I ended up still teaching at UCI occasionally. I also taught at Chapman a little and then um, also a few just night classes teaching, you know, engineers who needed to get a certificate, you know, to, to, to get a promotion at, you know, at work, just how to, how to do basic algebra. And then I also even dabbled with trying to become an actuary because, you know, I had to eat. Um, <laughs> I'm not a great fan of financial math, but it pays, you know, um, but thankfully as the economy improved, um, and uh, I guess my teaching record was good enough at UCI. I was sort of invited back to be, become a full-time lecturer in 2012. And there I have been ever since. It, it's worked out well for me. Let's, let's put it that way, because I love my job. But uh, it, it, it wasn't a, a completely seamless um, transition from research to teaching. Yeah, no, no. Thank you for the details. Do you have a favorite class that you teach? An area that you lean toward so this varies from year to year but the class that i really have got the most out of teaching in the last several years has been the history of mathematics class yes so um i teach a very wide variety of classes and partly this is because i, I probably said yes um more than i should when someone said hey we need someone to teach this class and i'll be like sure because you know it, I, i've had the time and you know let's uh let's go play with it. But um, about six years ago or so, seven years ago, 
another lecturer who had been teaching the history of mathematics class um, for, for years, she retired and I got her office and I got her class. <laughs> and I, I'd never thought very much about the history of, of the subject. And so it was a lot of reading and, and a lot of fun. I really learned a lot from doing that. And so you know, I, I, I feel like you know, I remember someone clever when they, they were um, giving me a talk about teaching years and years ago, um, tried to answer the question of um, how, how do you teach? Um, and, and his answer was, well, you teach what you do. And so to me, that class was awesome because what I was having to do was learn the material, you know, <laughs> a week in advance of the students. And because I was finding it fascinating, I think that that freshness of my understanding of it really helped make the class work well. And um, there was a lot for me to learn, a lot to understand. There's just a lot of a lot of things that you can do. It's a great place to get, you know, diversity issues into mathematics because I would encourage the students, say, to write an essay and um, on a topic of their their choice. And it's really good to just I've learned so much about different bits of mathematics being done in all sorts of different parts of the world that are outside of the standard. Oh, it was all the Greeks type lesson that you know we often hear. So it, it's just been a really fascinating class to, you know, and you get a lot of engagement from the students in it. So that, that's been really good fun. Oh, wonderful. <clears throat> Can you give us a brief history of math? Just give us a flavor to intrigue us. Well, the basic story that is usually told is that um, the thing that, that makes math kind of different or a unique subject is the concept of proof. It's abstraction. So we go back to um, uh, a guy called Thales of Miletus, who was a, a, a philosopher, mathematician of around what, 500 BC, something like that, uh, in Greece, Turkey, and the Aegean Sea. And um, it, it's this idea that, so he had a theorem, which was that in a, if you take a, um, a semicircle and you draw a triangle in that semicircle, so take a point on the top of the semicircle, and then the base of the triangle is going to be um, the diameter, like the base of the, the, the semicircle. Yeah. Draw that triangle together, you will always get a right angle at the top. Um, so this is still known as Thales' theorem. The thing that kind of made this unique um, for, for the Greeks and, and, and Thales' approach to things was the general statement here. He was really saying, not just, oh, I'm going to draw a picture and this little semicircle and this triangle in this semicircle, oh, look, it's a right angle. He was saying for every semicircle and for every triangle drawn inside that semicircle, you will always get a right angle. Now, did he really prove this in a modern formal way? No, but that idea of a general abstract principle that's going to be true all the time, that was really the invention of the Greeks, essentially. And so they developed this through, you know, Euclid's Elements is very, very famous about 200 years later, and everyone's heard of Pythagoras and Pythagoras' theorem. But um, the, the, the rough idea of that kind of core idea that, that geometry and, and logic and proof are kind of at, at the center of what mathematics is, it's then a story of how that kind of got transmitted around various parts of the world and improved upon, say, um, with India and China and um, Islamic mathematics feeding into this in, in uh, great amounts. And then you know, generally exploding essentially um, in, in Europe during kind of the time of Newton in the, in the mid 1600s, Newton and Descartes. 
um, and that's really modern math. It, it's kind of there, but that that very ancient core of what mathematics is, this idea of abstraction and you know general statements that are always true, um, mark that as very different from other ancient cultures that, for instance, would they'd want to measure things, they'd want to count things, but that's that's really arithmetic. That's not the kind of abstract general principles that the that the Greeks are famous for. Interesting. Excuse me another moment, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show. I'm your host, Kevin Bossemeyer, and my guest today is UCI math professor Neil Donaldson. In 2006, he came to UCI as a visiting assistant professor and has continued here since then. And we're just talking a little bit about the history of math and his love of math. Do you have a math hero? <laughs> Do I have a math hero? Boy, there's the, the I, put, I could have a few. <laughs> I'll, I'll allow you that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, there's obviously some, some of the ancient characters, that the, the, the stories that you learn when figuring out teaching history of math. Yeah. There's, there's, there's all sorts of kind of nice characters. I, I'm not sure hero is the yeah. right word, but you know, certain examples. Um, such Can as, you name, um, name one or two? Yeah, name one or two. So there, there was... Uh, Oh my, I'm, I'm forgetting the name, but there was a there was an associate of Pythagoras way back in you know 300 BC, who um, in attempting to convince the Pythagoreans that um, irrational numbers could exist, essentially was um, supposedly set adrift on the Mediterranean in order to uh, to punish him for his heresy, um, wow. and wow. we don't know what happened to him. But just there's there's stories like this. Archimedes was, you know, a, 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 you could call him a hero. He essentially discovered calculus 2,000 years before anybody else. But it was, he, he couldn't really publish it, if you like, because nobody would understand this. And then sort of famously um, still sat at his desk doing his mathematics and refusing to flee when the, the Romans sacked Syracuse. And uh, he ended up, you know, being put to death. Because he sort of chose math over life, you could almost argue. But there's there, there's there's all kinds of you know other characters going oh. through this. I love the story. I encourage anyone to look it up. Of um, Sophie Germain, who was a, a a contemporary of Gauss in, in the 1800s, who was one of the earliest very famous female mathematicians. And just the, the the difficulties that she had in in getting her work out there and and exposed. And kind of partly having to pretend that she was a man in order to, to, to get some of this done. And um, th there are all sorts of people. It's been one of the pleasures of, uh, of learning about history, get exposed to some of these stories. It's, uh, right, 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 right. Do you identify two or three that, you know, the, the top mathematicians of all time? Can you quantify it like that? So whenever there's another class that I teach very often, it's called Modern Geometry. And it is arguably a very badly named course because the, the, the first five or six weeks, I'll be teaching it next term, actually. The first five or six weeks are Euclidean geometry. So it's 2,300 years old, hardly very modern. But I would sort of say that I consider mathematics in a very, very loose way to almost have um, two big you know, two lions, if you like, that kind of bookend it. There's Euclid at the, uh, way back at 300 BC, who in creating this massive book, The Elements of, of kind of gathering together ancient mathematics, kind of set in stone what mathematics is, right? This, this very abstract, axiomatic 
approach to things that here are the basic assumptions we're going to make and here are all of the, the, the theorems that we can prove based on that stuff. And this process with lots and lots of improvements and have continued all the way through the late 1800s and early 1900s when the other, to my mind, lion of mathematics is, is David Hilbert, who was a, a German mathematician. And um, he really, he, I would almost argue, invented modern mathematics. He, he, he did a, a huge amount of work on really trying to come up with rigorous axioms, background, um, to you know, what are our core assumptions and really kind of defining the various areas of mathematics and posing a huge number of interesting problems that have kept modern mathematicians up at night kind of ever since. And so it's, it's almost like what Euclid started, Hilbert really kind of got formalized in you know, the early 1900s. He really is the first person to have published a very solid um, corrected version of, of Euclid's geometry, he, um, his Grundlagender geometry, um, in, which is the Foundations of Geometry, which he, he published in the, in the early 1900s, is, is, is really one of, one of the key texts of, of, of mathematics, and uh, just in terms of really, really trying to make sure everything was watertight. And uh, the way he did math is the way that modern mathematicians do math. So I, I kind of see math as being in these, these, these sort of eras. There's pre-Euclid, then there's all the time between Euclid and Hilbert where people are improving, but there's still things that are a bit ad hoc. And then there's modern mathematics since Hilbert. Interesting. So was Hilbert a contemporary of Einstein or were they in yes. two different areas? Did, yes, did, yes. They, um, did they interact? Oh, I, I don't know how much they interacted. I mean, Einstein, it's almost a, a joke, it's a famous joke that he was supposedly not very good at mathematics. And um, I think his first wife, supposedly helped him with a, a lot of the mathematics. But certainly Hilbert worked on non-Euclidean geometry, and this is the, 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 you know, the, the geometry that Einstein needed in order to do general relativity. So I'm not an expert on how much they interacted, but Einstein wasn't specifically a mathematician. You know, he was what we'd now call a physicist, um, obviously, but uh, I, I would assume that they they interacted because yeah. they were certainly active at, at at the same time. Was Hilbert British? No, no, he was German. Oh, German. Oh, okay. So, you know, Professor, when you look at the the, the famous Einstein formula, E equals M C squared. Yeah, E equals M C squared. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is that a mathematical formula? Because lately I've been looking at for non math people, you know, you look at a, a chalkboard or a whiteboard that has, you know, like, a, you know, it's like a different language, right? It, right. And so is Einstein's formula, is that mathematical or no, no, it's completely something different? Well, it's a bit of both, but partly, you know, a, as a mathematician, I, I kind of have to care about what the definitions are here. And uh, it, it kind of depends on where you draw the line around mathematics. Uh, if you're, if you're an ancient Greek, Literally, the word math just means knowledge. So you're allowed to put anything you like into that box. Mm -hmm. So to that extent, sure, equals mc squared is, is, is a math equation. Um, and to the extent that um, relativity is very much, certainly a lot of um, the, the motivation for the development of new mathematics, including things like calculus, for instance, which largely developed by, by Newton and Leibniz. But Newton is not primarily thought of as a mathematician. He's now thought of primarily as a physicist. Um, but he invented all of this mathematics in order to describe what he was doing. 
So it, it's a bit like saying, you know, is it, it, someone who just studies English grammar, is, is, is that, it, you know, it, it, is, that, is that all English is? Um, mm-hmm. It's the language of, of what we do. So mm-hmm. definitely e equals mc squared, is, it, it's a math equation in that sense, but it's, it's more of a kind of fundamental principle of physics. It, you could argue it's, it's like an axiom of his, his theory of relativity, that, that energy and mass are essentially interchangeable. Interesting. Do you ever get stuck on math problems? All the time. <laughs> In fact, one of the things I, uh, I regularly do when I'm, I'm teaching, I, you know, I, I, I type out the homework questions, especially if I've never taught the class before. And then I try to answer all of them before I assign the problems. And mostly it's because I want to make sure that I'm going to um, assign questions for the students that I've actually taught them how to do. And then right. occasionally I'll start trying to answer it. I'm thinking, what? I don't know how to do this. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> and I, I really think that this is an essential part of what mathematics is. Yeah. Um, and it, it's one of the essential things that I, I got pleasure from. But it's, it's, it's almost pleasure in the form of deliberately frustrating yourself for a period <laughs> of time. You know, if you get stuck and then you try hard and it finally clicks and you get it, it's an awesome feeling, but it's it got is. to be hard. You've got to struggle at it. You've got to feel like you're stuck. If everything's just bite-sized and easy, you don't get that, right. you know, that hit from solving the thing. So it's, it, it's almost a necessary thing. You have to kind of keep challenging yourself to, to solve problems. And, you know, fundamentally, I'm just teaching people how to solve problems, but I, I've got to still keep enjoying doing that myself. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to convey that to the students. So, yeah, I, I kind of spend a fair bit of my own time when preparing classes actually just solving problems and, well, <laughs> and, and getting stuck on them. And that's, you know, that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Well, on the other side of that, do you ever feel like, Oh man, I'm, I'm dumb. I should have known that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, sure. And um, you know, what I often say to students is that mathematics, the, the, the harder it gets, the further up you get, the longer the period of frustration for a given problem. And when you're getting to kind of research level mathematics, I mean, my, my PhD, I feel like to some extent, my PhD could be summarized by saying, I had to read a 85 page paper that my advisor had written. And it took me about three years to fight my way through it. And I wow. got stuck for six months at the time because wow. I just didn't understand what he was trying to do. But then I'd go, go at it, and I was trying to expand this in, in certain directions and, and try to figure things out. But when, when you have to struggle with something, you're coming into work every day and just banging your head against the wall going, I'm, I'm not getting this, I'm not getting this. But you keep, right. you, you keep persevering at it. And then eventually something clicks and you get it. I mean, I've, I've never taken heroin, but I would assume that that's a bit like what it's like. You know, it's, it's you know, that the, you, you have to have that pain and that, that, you know, that feeling like you're stupid. You're going to feel more and more stupid the, the, the more mathematics you do. I, I have never felt as stupid as when I'm trying to teach something that I don't understand, right? So it, it just gets worse the whole time. But then when you get it, the hit is stronger, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like that's just an essential part of the experience to me. Have you, you know, I get maybe this is more particular to college, but, you know, did you ever get to like, man, I, I don't know if I'm going to get this. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. All, all, all the time. And um, I think my, my first experience with, with, of this was uh, 
during an undergraduate research project where me and my advisor, we applied for some money to try and research a problem, which was um, a problem of, um, could, could you hear the shape of a drum skin? Which sounds like a strange thing to say, but in, in essence, the, the, the problem here is you can know, imagine a drum skin um, and you hit it and that's got a particular sound. Yeah. Um, does that sound change if you change the shape? If it's a square drum, you know, if, if it's a round drum, if it's an oval drum. And we were trying to figure out how to describe, could you hear the shape if it was a hexagon, for instance, to try and explain this. Yeah. And we tried, he had a couple of ideas to, to play with. And I, I worked on these for about seven, eight, nine weeks over the summer. And in the end, I feel like all I really did was to understand the problem but I didn't really make any significant progress. But that is not uncommon. This is what the research process is like. You know, the, the people who are successful at research, they'll have several, several ideas that are on the go at the same time because they don't know when one of them is going to just run into a roadblock. Now, obviously I was only working on this as an undergrad for the summer. So this wasn't something which you know, had to continue, but you, know, you have to have three or four irons in the fire at, at one time because you'll think you've got a good idea, you'll work on it for a bit, and then, oops, it's, it's just, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And maybe if you stick it in a dusty drawer for six months, suddenly you'll have an epiphany, because sometimes your best ideas happen when you're not thinking about them. So yes, I've had that, and it happens to everybody who's trying to do this stuff. Gotcha. Since we're on this topic of frustration, <laughs> in your professional math career, I think oftentimes students think that professors... Well, they're just naturals at it, and their road is a, for lack of a better word, a bed of roses. It's just linear, and it all just falls into place. Have you had any adversity where you felt like, yeah, I just had to put my nose to the grindstone and grind through it? Do you have any story um, like that? Yeah, to, to some extent. I mean, partly I think just my, my personality is that if I'm going to start something, I'm, you know, arguably just a bit too much. I'll, I'll obsess about it, which math is kind of suited to people like that who are, you know, willing to just focus on something for, for a long time. But in terms of setbacks, I, I mentioned this, uh, this student who was at my, my high school, who was just awesome. And yeah. How he ended up going off and getting a gold medal in the, in the International Math Olympia. So there were several rounds of qualification for this. And I got through in my final year to like the second round of the, the qualification for this, but it was still, it was just a test that was conducted in the, within our school. And he and I were the only two people taking this test. There were still after this several rounds before you actually got on the team. So a three hour exam. And I just, I hadn't the faintest idea what to do. My, my final score on that exam was three out of 42, three points. Wow. Three hours of work. And, and this guy got 41. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it was in that essay. He, he, he totally owned me. But, but that feeling of, oh, you know, here is a limit. There's, there's a level that I'm, I'm not at. And, right. and I would say that when I got to graduate school, one of my office mates was an absolute genius. Um, he'd already published two or three papers before he'd arrived as a, as a graduate student. And again, I just felt like he was three, four years ahead of where I was. And I, I repeatedly met people as, as either a grad student or as a postdoc that I, I really just felt were kind of naturals. They got it. They knew how to do the research and succeed. Whereas I was more of someone who had to grind it out. 
I didn't feel like I had that, that kind of, you know, special vision that others had. Um, yeah. it, it was it was a grind for me, but I was I was quite good at the grind, if, yeah. if you like. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you identified your natural, you know, where you were at. To be honest, I'm a little older than you, but that has been a frustration of me is unrealistically trying to go for things that just aren't my natural niche. You know, right. as much as you or I could want to be that guy, the genius in math, but it just ain't going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Well, sure. I mean, we're, we're, we're into, there's a bit of sort of teaching philosophy that kind of comes in here. I remember applying for an actuarial job years and years ago. And one of the questions, they only gave me a binary choice on this question, but it was supposed to, you know, judge my personality. And uh, they ask, um, do you believe that people are innately born able to do things? Or do you believe that anyone can do anything if they just try hard enough? And of course, this was business gut. So they, they wanted you to say, anyone can succeed in anything but, <laughs> right. you know that, that so i i refused to play ball and i ticked both boxes and then i got hauled up in it for the for the interview because again both of these statements are partly true and right. both of them are partly false right, right. and right. you know you, you can succeed it's just that if it's not your predilection then certain things are going to be harder for you I don't like chemistry as much as I like mathematics. I still managed to get A's in chemistry as a grade school kid, but I had to work twice as hard because it wasn't fun. You know, it's that you can't really get around that fact that I could probably, if I put my mind to it, have got a degree in chemistry and done okay, but I wouldn't have enjoyed it as much as I, I did with math. And so that it, it's easier to swim downstream, you know, yeah. <laughs> finding your niche. Right. You are listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI Math Department lecturer, Neil Donaldson. Here, we return to an earlier part of the interview and talk about a high school math competitor of his and whatever happened to him. This fellow student back in grade school that... Was it's a all a traumatic memory for me, isn't it? <laughs> Do you keep in contact with him or, or do you never want to see him ever again? Oh, no, no, again? no, no, no. I, I, I no animosity at all for this guy. He, he was only there for the final year of my of grade school. Um, oh, he yeah. moved into the neighborhood? Yeah, sorry, I, I think his, his parents came to work at the university. And, yeah, yeah. So that must have been like, whoa, where'd he come from? So, sort of, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I believe he went off to Cambridge and, you know, uh, aced that. But I, I think he ended up becoming a banker. Oh, really? Decided that research math wasn't for him and, and went off to make a lot of money, you know, all power. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. there's, there's, there's a particular sort of uh, person that, that does very well in the, in the research side of things. And I think that's kind of different from teaching. And there's some people who, you know, they, they might be incredibly gifted, be able to learn this stuff, but they, they don't actually want to, you know, research isn't really for them. It's they, they may be for excellent, you know, incredibly gifted at mathematics, but they want to apply that in a in a, in a different place, you know. So uh, I'll, I'll power to. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Do you have a sense? Is there more math to be discovered, <laughs> or it's like no, we we won't know until we know. Um, I'd say that your latter suggestion is is the more correct one in in my mind. So what often happens is that there are kind of marquee problems. So a, a very famous example of this would be the, the proof um, 20 odd years ago, 25 years ago now, I guess, of, of Fermat's last theorem, which was a, a, a very famous problem that 
mathematicians have been trying to solve for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and this, because it was so famous, it, it encouraged people to, to work on this. And it forced open all sorts of ideas and connections between this equation, this, this problem, and other areas of mathematics. And indeed, arguably caused the invention of large areas of mathematics. So large, you know, and some of these have had very big applications. So for instance, cryptography would, would not be what it is without mathematicians trying to work on this, this completely pure abstract problem and trying to, to solve it and spending 250 odd years working on this problem. But now, you know, every time your computer contact, um, contacts your bank, it's, it's using mathematics that was developed along the way to solving that problem that perhaps would have taken another 200 years before anyone had looked in that direction had that problem not been out there. So it's, we, we just don't know the answer of what, what gets created and how people are going to see connections between that and something else or even a, you know, a very useful application for it until it happens. But that's one of the fun things. There, there, there's, there's arguably a kind of meta theorem in, in, in mathematics and philosophy that, that can be read in, in one way as saying, we're never going to be done with this. That it's, it's, it's impossible for mathematics to be finished. There's always going to be questions you can ask and, and new ideas that can be, can, can be invented or, or discovered, depending on how you look at it. Um, and and I, I find that kind of reassuring. I think a lot of people come into to, to math because they, they feel like they're, they're looking for absolute truth and they think they're going to find it. And perhaps that's one of the reasons I got involved in math as a, you know, a kind of nervous about the world teenager. I wanted some nice small, um, you know, controlled field of study where, you know, I could be in control of it, you know, and there were perfect answers. But as, a, as an old crusty now, I... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like I like the nuance and I, I find it reassuring that we're kind of never going to be finished with this stuff, that knowledge will keep on expanding and our understanding will keep on expanding. And you know, it's, it's just, that's kind of a nice way to feel about the world, I think. And I certainly feel better about that now as a 40-year-old than I, I would have done as a 16-year-old when I think that idea would have freaked me out. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of COVID, has the math department been able to work on this problem or is this more of a problem for other departments um i i don't I, i'm not sure i could comment on how other departments are handling it i mean that uh, th th this this is where um you know I, I might risk offending my employer slightly but we're all basically just doing the best we can and i mean both the faculty and the students it is it's just a tough gig for for everybody I know that, or I suspect that the big wigs at UCI would love us to pretend that it's entirely equivalent what is going on right now, but it it, it really isn't. Um, there, there's something massively missing from the just the, the the serendipitous interactions that you have in a classroom. That, um, whether it's me being able to see the students and just knowing, just you can just look at their faces. I mean, one of the ways I teach is just within the first. 10 minutes of my first class of the term is I'll identify the three or four most active faces in the room and I'll just kind of flick around them while I'm speaking and if and if they're looking puzzled and confused I know that what I'm saying is not sinking in and if they're nodding then then you know I know yeah. what's going on yeah. that is gone that is just completely gone I'm, I'm talking to myself uh -huh. so I don't know if people are getting it and each class is always different but even from the student's point of view they they 
I think an, an underrated um, thing for students is that they're taking classes often with other students that they're familiar with those, you know, the ability level, if you like, of, of the other students. They kind of know where they fit. So even if you're just sitting quietly in the classroom and you're listening to the questions that other students are asking, you might be sitting back and going, yeah, I get that. That I, I know the answer to that. I'm not going to raise my hand because you know I'm a bit nervous, but whatever. And they'll they get that reassurance that they're they're kind of understanding the material at a pace that they, they know that they're not falling behind. They they know where they expect to be. They you know if they've got B's in all of their other math classes, they expect to understand the material at a particular rate, and they expect to be able to you know answer some questions that students that they might consider are C-level students are, are asking. That, that reassurance that, that they get, I, I think is huge. So we're, we're just seeing individual students that they're just, some of them are self-motivated, they can do this. They, you know, you could just give them a book and, and, and they would pass the exam. But for a lot of them, it, it's just very, very hard to, to keep going and to, to make themselves keep going because they don't know whether they're getting it. And they, they, it's so much harder for them. They've got to be much more proactive to get a, to get to ask me a question than, than they would if it was if they were seeing me three times a week. And so I, I think it's it's exceptionally tough for the students, and they're, and they're missing out on all of the other important things that college has that aren't about getting A's in math classes. Which you know, it's, there's a lot of things that you're supposed to do. I certainly grew up a lot when I was a, a college student in ways that had nothing to do with mathematics. So it, it's you know, we're, we're doing the best we can. We've all got different strategies for how to, for, for how to work this, but it's not, it's definitely not optimal. And uh, it's certainly not for most of us teaching what we signed up for, but you know, it, it's what it is. And we're all hoping to get back in the classroom, I think as fast as possible because it, right, right. It, it's, it's awesome. us and the students. We <laughs> Do you actually have class or do you mostly do office hours or? So, um, it, what I, the way I'm organizing things is that I will use my lecture time as office hours. So I'll just oh. be on Zoom and students can come on in and I have office hours starting in, in half an hour. So um, oh. you know, they, they, they'll just pop in, ask questions, whatever it is. But um, in part because we have international students who are you know, maybe in China right now um, and who cannot you know, come back in the country we have to record our lectures so that they can watch them at another time. I cannot mandate synchronous lectures uh -huh. because it, you know, if I'm giving a lecture at, at midday, that might right. be three in the morning in Shanghai. I right. cannot realistically say to students, you must get up three right. days a week for, for 10 right. weeks at three in the morning, local time. That's absurd. So, you know, I'm, I'm recording lectures. Um, and obviously I, I've had even more of an impetus to do that because of the, knowing that this baby was going to appear um, <laughs> whenever it was going to appear. So I, you know, worked hard to get a couple of weeks ahead. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm basically having, I record the lectures. I, I make myself available for the office hours. But the, the, what, what I'm really noticing is that the students who are kind of at the CD level, they are doing, let's say, 10 points worse in COVID times on all the tests than they would have done before. And I, I, it's like the distribution, rather than being a nice bell curve, it's more like a camel's hump, right? You've got two humps. And it's sort of the, the, the weaker students who, who 
really need you to, to be there to encourage them and to say, please come to my office or let's go solve this problem right now. And those students are really, are really struggling because there, there's just no realistic way that, that I can individually communicate with 80 students, you know, each week and go, you know, how are you doing? How's, how's, how are things working out? And right. that part of it is, is, I think, really tough, both you know, for, for them and, and for me. The A-level students are doing fine. <laughs> they don't need my help. But uh, um, it's, th- that part is just it, it, how to help the weaker students, the ones who, you know, maybe their prerequisites are not quite as strong. It's, it, there's just no really good answer to that right now. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, th- thank you for those insights. Wow, the time has gone fast. It's, what's on the horizon for you? Frankly, it's just getting back in the classroom. And um, you know, what I what I discovered when I was a postdoc and I had charge of my own classes was partly the terror of standing there and having to, you know, having to pontificate and know what you're talking about, but but also just the the, the pleasure of conveying something that I think is beautiful. it's a transaction. Teaching is a transaction. And at the moment, it is not a transaction. I have these pictures in my head that I think are are awesome because, you know, the math that I'm teaching, I think is, let's say, extremely beautiful. And I I just wish I could download that into students' minds. And the the most rewarding moments of teaching are when you realize that somebody has got the picture. They've seen the forest and it's not just, here are a bunch of trees, which is solve this problem, solve this problem. They they kind of see the, the big thing. And just as a purely selfish thing, that's one of the big pleasures of teaching for me is, is seeing that happen. Mm-hmm. And I can't see that happen, or it's very rare because uh, in office hours are just not, not the same way that they would happen in person. So right. I, I really want to get back to that. And I really want to, frankly, just be able to have conversations with students where if they're having problems, they feel like they can actually talk to me properly because again over zoom it's so impersonal if, if people are having problems you know just wanting to get to know these people it's it's one of the pleasures of teaching is getting to know your students and what what are they up to who are they and right. again we're just we're so distant so all that right. is very selfish but you know <laughs> doing the math i can still do that on my own that's that's fine but the interactions being able to work with people that's I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting back to that. Where does uh, UCI lie in terms of our math department? How big is our math department? That, that's a hard question. Well, I, I, could, I could probably look it up, but my, my guess is that there's roughly 50-ish professors. Now, um, I, I, I'll try not to be too long about this, but the, depending on who you ask, in an academic sense, as in who is in a department. And um, some people will argue that as a research university, which is what UCI is, then the only people who are really in the department are the professors. And I'm not a professor, right? So a, a, a professor is someone whose primary job is to do research and to advise PhD students and publish their research, essentially raise the profile of UCI um, as, a, as a research institution. And also they will have teaching responsibilities for for undergraduates. Now, these faculty are known as Senate faculty, and they're they're part of the academic Senate, and uh, and they they basically run the show. They're the core part of the the department. Then there's people like me who've been around a while. I'm I'm considered non-Senate faculty, but I I just teach. 
Um, you can almost hear the air quotes around the word just. I teach a lot more classes every term than professors do, mm. but there's a, a significant number of us. And so we have quite a different role in the department because we're not Senate faculty. We don't sit on committees. We're not part of kind of departmental governance. And so often we're a little bit more at the side of the department. We can often feel like we're not really part of the department because decisions are made about what classes to offer, et cetera, et cetera. And we're not really part of those discussions unless we happen to be speaking with, you know, the people who make those decisions. Mm. So when you include those people like myself and then include postdocs as well, then the, the size of the department, you know, it, it might come close to doubling. Mm. Um, and then you add in all of the graduate students as well, and, and you're doubling again. So there's, there's kind of layers of an onion here. Yeah. Um, but, but who's in the department and who's not is a it's some, sometimes a slightly vexed political question. <laughs> who gotcha. You ask. gotcha. I, I kind well, of like well, being slightly on the side, you know. It's, uh... <laughs> well, Professor Neil Donaldson, thank you so much for spending the hour with us and giving us these insights into math and, and your excitement and love for the subject. We really appreciate it, especially at this juncture of your family life. So we, we <laughs> wish you all the best with that and continued success. Indeed. Thanks for speaking. It was a pleasure. Cheers. Thank you again to UCI Math Department lecturer Neil Donaldson, originally from St. Andrews, Scotland, for all his insights into the world of math, from the current difficult challenges of the COVID environment to way back to Pythagoras, Archimedes, and Sophie Germain, who impersonated a man because she loved the beauty of numbers so much similar to the love and beauty my guests expressed for math today. Thank you again, Neil Donaldson, for sharing, and all my best to you and your family. Cheers back to you. And as always, thank you to my piano man, Fred Kaplan, for all my show theme music from his terrific blues combo CD, Signifying. It's a goodie. And now turning the page, coming up next at 5 p.m. is Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra, Discussing business solutions for tough business problems with experienced business leaders. Stay tuned. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Comments and suggestions are always welcome through email at kboss at kuci.org. And my podcast website is open 24-7 at www.bossenmeyer.com. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, encouraging you to continue to be vigilant. Let's keep those COVID numbers on the downhill track. Keep socially distancing and doubling up with masks. And get that vaccine as soon as possible. We are all in this together, and we're going to win. Happy trails. So long, everybody. We'll see you next week on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.